Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. My name is Cameron English. I am the director of biosciences at the American Council on Science and Health. And I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Chuck Dinnerstein, who is our director of medicine. Chuck, how are you this fine afternoon? I'm fine. It's a beautiful day out here in Long Island for a change. And I, I have the feeling that spring is just around the corner. As far as the birds are concerned, spring has arrived. So I'm very happy. It's always nice to have a little sunshine in your life, especially after a long winter. Oh, but sure. let's, uh, let's tell people what we're doing here. So uh, every week at the end of the week, we send out an email called the ACSH Dispatch, and it has all of our most read articles for the week. So what we're going to do here is uh, pick usually two of those stories, and we're just going to dive into them in a, in a little more detail and, and try to help people understand what the articles are about, why they're relevant, and maybe some of the, the underlying science um, that's behind the studies. So this week we've got two. We've got one that you wrote called Getting the Lead Out, and then we have run, one that I wrote um, about the impact of alcohol on, uh, on your brain. So, so let's start with yours. This one is about the, the, the correlation between uh, blood lead levels and IQ. So tell us, just, just give us a quick rundown of, of what the paper showed us. Well, first of all, it started with a, a really wonderful title to get your interest, which was half of the U.S. population exposed to adverse lead levels in early childhood. Um, so that right away was an interesting thing to find. And what they actually did is the researchers went back and looked at the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey in Haines, which has a lot of data collected on people over the years, including the blood work. And they, they found blood levels that were, went back to 1976. And then they tried to extrapolate that back to blood levels uh, back into the 40s and 50s, which is always a, a little bit of a, a guesstimate more than anything else. But what they did find, and I thought was probably the most interesting of the things, was that 90% or more of the children born between 1950 and 1980, which is basically the boomer generation, my people, <laughs> had blood levels of clinical concern, meaning that they were greater uh, than five micrograms per deciliter. In fact, there were children in the in the fifties and early sixties that had uh, blood levels of fifty micrograms. These are levels that we would never even think about having anymore. And the first thing that I noticed about the study that I, that I really thought was great was that once the EPA banned banned leaded gasoline, amount of lead in our blood plummeted. And at this point in time, there's less than 1% of the population that has uh, any kind of a blood level of concern compared to that larger percentage of, of the boomer generation. So irrespective of what our experience has been in the last year or two with uh, government regulations and trusting the government, this is certainly an example of how a simple regulation can have a huge environmental and health impact. The real problem for me uh, with this with the study began with that half of the U.S. population exposed. And I, for whatever reason, I think the researchers like to have some other kind of large number to uh, gather interest. And the, the quote is that a total of 825 million IQ points were lost <laughs> because of childhood lead exposure in the U.S. population in 19, excuse me, in 2015. That is a huge number until you divide it by the population. Then it turns out to be about 2.6 points of IQ <laughs> per person. And, and I'm willing to take double or even triple and let somebody else be off the hook on that. But again, just um, 
clickbait. Find an interesting number, multiply it by some other interesting numbers, and then you have a very large number that serves to draw people's attention to the study. The weak part of the study was in correlating the change in the IQ, that drop in IQ points, um, to the lead levels. And for that, they went back to a study from about um, 1985, which involved um, a meta-analysis of seven international studies going on. Um, what they found in there was that the amount of lead in your blood was correlated to some degree, not quite in a dose-response curve that we would like to see, uh, with diminished IQ. The difficulty with, with that particular study was that about a third of the mothers were smoking during pregnancy, and 20% of the mothers were drinking alcohol, which is not really um, what we'd expect to find today in the United States. So it's tough to correlate that study with blood levels in the U.S. Susan Goldhaber, who was our uh, resident toxicologist, also weighed in on the study because she thought that extrapolation was also a, a little weak and pointed out that IQ tests have a margin of error of about five points. So the, the 2.9 points that they found is clearly within the margin of error. <laughs> and overall, we, the best we can say for this, and, and it's an important point, is we've been able to dramatically drop the amount of lead found in people's blood because we stopped um, leaded gasoline. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. And I think th this will apply to the, the other story we're going to talk about as well. But it seems that they they take an observation that's valid and that is a, a public health benefit, namely getting lead out of gasoline. But then some of the specifics of the study raise certain questions and you hit you hit a handful of them. But I want to I want to get to this term that you use a lot when you're looking at epidemiological studies. And uh, that's math magic. <laughs> so yes. I'm wondering if you can explain what you mean when you say math magic and maybe give us um, a, an example of, of how they might have employed math magic in this in this paper. <laughs> well, I, I think the math magic in this paper comes out to that 825 million IQ points. And what they basically did is they calculated, and it was not, not a small project, they calculated um, the lead levels in the population at each age group over that period of time, and then related it to the, the seven international studies, and with that came up with their number. So what you have is a guesstimate times a guesstimate. The problem is, is that when we see numbers, especially when we start attaching p-values to them, we think that they have uh, more validity than they actually do. So maybe that's an important takeaway beyond the fact that being exposed to lead is not good for you. Um, when you see numbers in a study or you see numbers in a headline, just approach them with a little caution uh, until you can investigate what they actually mean, because they can be misleading. Yes, the numbers are not often as concrete as we, we think of them when we go to the supermarket or when we get in the line lately for gasoline. Very good. All right. Well, you know, a lot of what we're talking about, it relates to this story um, about alcohol shrinking your brain. And I, I, this is great because, because yours was about, you know, being exposed to lead destroys a billion IQ points. You know, we're all, we're all ruined. Um, yes. and, and it's the same, it's the same thing here. And it's another great example because, well, let me back up. So 
this study came out, I think it was just last week. Um, and, uh, they found a correlation between consuming alcohol and, and your, your brain mass or your brain volume. Mm-hmm. And yes. it was a very overall, we'll get into this, but overall it was a very small effect that they found. If you take their numbers at face value, it was something like, um, 0.3% or 0.4%, depending on whether you left, um, heavy drinkers in the sample or not. So, so overall, it's a very small effect, but the media didn't communicate this uh, when they reported on it. And I, I highlighted a story from a website called IFL Science, which um, stands for I F word love science. <laughs> so, oh, fair enough. I, that we got around that. That's a, that's a, um, I don't know. I think that's for a younger generation. That's for people my age and younger because profanity makes your website cool, apparently. But in, in any case, the point I'm making is that they did not highlight the specifics of the study. They just said they found this correlation. Even if you have, um, you know, one or two drinks a day, there's a noticeable impact on your brain. But when you look at the actual numbers, um, they're, they're, I I don't want to say they're nothing, but they're, they're relatively insignificant. And, and against the backdrop of this important fact, which is that every decade after 40, a a number of studies have shown you lose a little bit of, of brain volume, um, just, just from aging. And I'm sure there's different variables that influence that, but this was all left out of the press release. It was left out of the, the media. So I want to get to a couple other things, but give me your take on that. I mean, you're a physician you've seen a billion of these kind of studies over your career. So what, what are your thoughts here? Well, the first thing you have to know, and, and this goes back to that old television program house, all patients lie and they certainly lie about their drinking. Um, because nobody wants to be labeled uh, as an alcoholic, uh, which is at uh, five glasses of wine a week. Um, so everybody minimizes what we have. So even, you know, even data that's in an electronic health record it is not going to be reliable in terms of people's dr- drinking. And again, it, it commits the usual fallacy of many of these studies is that it asks about um, people's drinking uh, at one point in time and assumes that that's what goes on uh, for the rest of their lives. And I would have to say, I, I, I think I um, probably drank more cheap liquor in college. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I drink a lot less, but more expensive liquor now. So the liquor bill probably has not changed, but the volume has <laughs> gone down. Well, that's a, it's a really good point. And I want to, I want to move to that next. And to their credit, they pointed this out in the limitation section of the paper. And they said, you know, we had one year of data to work with and they're working with numbers from the UK biobank study, um, which is generally, it's like a giant database of health and genetic information on, I believe it's hundreds of thousands of people in Britain. Yes. But it's, it, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. Well, please, please give people context. That's always good. Well, The biobank, it was designed to, to do a lot of these uh, genome wide association studies. It is uh, It is the typical Brit. It is a middle-aged white dude um, that makes up this study. So it, okay. it definitely has biases built in. Okay. So that, so right there, that would limit the generalizability of the results because there's, there's so many variables in play, but then between different groups of people, there's going to be different influences on their behavior or, you know, how their, how their body reacts to what they're doing, so on and so forth. But, um, 
the point you made about having one year of, of data to work with. So the, I think the, the average or yeah, the average age of someone in this, in this, this current study we're looking at was a little over 63 years old. So they had no idea what their drinking habits were like before that. And they point out the, they, they sort of allude to it. But when you look into this, what you find is that people's drinking changes over the course of their life. So as you kind of were joking about when you're in college, you drink, you know, cheap malt liquor and you drink a lot of it. And it's, you know, you're, you're, you're binge drinking basically, cause that's the party phase of your life. But as you get older, a lot of people, they, they moderate their drinking, they drink higher quality liquor, but not as much of it. Um, and then of course, as you age, and maybe you can speak to this too, as you age, um, your body responds differently. So the same amount of alcohol has a, a more noticeable effect on your health or excuse yeah. yeah, on your health and on your, on your behavior. So, um, you tend to adjust to that. So throughout your life, you're drinking a lot. Sometimes you're drinking less. Uh, and the example that they gave in, in their paper was alcoholics. So al- alcoholics, they drink chronically and then they say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to make amends. And then they stop for a few weeks or a few months and then they fall off the wagon. And many of them do stop permanently, which is, which is of course desirable. But, but the interesting point here is that you have this undulating sort of a pattern and it, it makes it difficult to say, well, you know, drinking two units of alcohol a day is going to, you know, take scoops out of your brain. So I've said a lot, but, but what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, well, I, well, I think you're correct about all of that. You know, it, it's just very tough, certainly with a one-year study that falls into the mathematic, mathematic category of, of numbers uh, to draw any kind of meaningful conclusions, especially when you, if you look at the ending and you're talking about, such small changes in uh, total volume, which is in itself a, a calculated number based upon how many slices uh, were done on the CT scanner. You know, the, the volume is measured by counting pixels <laughs> of the brain <laughs> to determine I, volume. And it, so it's another ma- mathematical manipulation, and I'm really not aware of how um, the error range for the, for that, but again, it's not like they took out the brain, measured it, and put it back in. Right. <laughs> that'd be a, that'd be an interesting experiment. I don't know if you'd get that by a review board, but uh, the results might be might be kind of interesting to look at. Um, as we wrap up, let's talk a little bit, and and I want to stress this. You already hit it briefly, but. This, this fact that people lie when it comes to epidemiological studies. And, and I looked up a few examples. Uh, people lie about how much they eat. They lie about how often they go to church. <laughs> they lie yes. about their voting habits. And it's either, it's not, uh, maybe lie is the wrong word. I think sometimes people just misremember things, especially when it comes to food. And if you've ever looked at a food frequency questionnaire that's used in, in studies of this nature, they say, you know, how many servings of banana did you have over the last two weeks or the last year or, or whatever? You know, so you're, you're asking people to estimate very specific amounts of food or alcohol that they've consumed. And so that's asking for trouble because people have flawed memory. But sometimes they, they have an intention of making themselves look better and and. The best example I found of this, it was a 2013 review of the data that's in the the NHANE study. Um, And they basically said people reported eating so little that they would have died if this was correct. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. 
so 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 co- comment on that. I mean, I know you you mentioned that when you're talking to patients, they're they're just not inclined to tell you the truth if it makes them look bad. Right. There's a lot of virtue signaling going on. Um, and you don't want to dis- you don't want to disappoint your doctor. Certainly, if, if they ask you to be on a diet and you ask them how it's going, they're not going to disappoint you. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. Um, and so you you know, I think that um, doctors with experience kind of take that into account and go from there and and kind of factor it in <laughs> to their to their broad view. But it it does make all of this. Um, underlying data uh, circumspect. And I would say the same thing is true or even more true um, when you're talking about electronic health records, because those things uh, require um, checkbox digital choices. You know, you, you can't say that I drink a glass and a half of wine. You can drink a glass or you can drink two glasses. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that's the input that the uh, the computer will take, and that, that's something we haven't even begun to think about how um, our data entry uh, systems are going to uh, confound what we're really looking to figure out. Well, just a final thing we could we could talk about. Um, I, I when it comes to epidemiological data, I rely on a, an expert I know named Jeffrey Cabot. He's a cancer epidemiologist. He's written a lot about you know, sort of the, sort of the loopholes and the gaps in these kind of studies. And one of the things that he's pointed out is that all of the sexy work in epidemiology has been done, you know, smoking and lung cancer, uh, HPV and cervical cancer, you know, what causes heart disease, like the big, you know, life altering results have already been found. So a lot of people in this field, they're stuck doing what's called risk factor epidemiology, where you're taking um, a very specific behavior and you're looking at a very small effect it might have on a more important disease. And the study that we're talking about is a, is a good example. But the point here is that there's a big debate in the field right now. You have some people who want to just maintain the status quo because this is what they know how to do and they've been doing it all their careers. And then you have some people saying, look, we're not contributing anything meaningful to public health anymore. Not, not, not even for maybe like the last 50 years. So we need to, we need to update the, our methods because we're not giving people useful information. So, I mean, comment on that, if you will, I just think the the interesting detail there is that there's this war going on about the methodology. And, and if you don't follow this as most people don't, and I understand that, you know, why would you, Uh, you have a life to live, but you know, if you just look at the headlines and you see these kind of studies, your perception of your risks based on alcohol consumption or diet, it's wildly different from the reality because in the, in the, you know, backstage, these people are arguing about whether the results are even meaningful. So, so what are your thoughts? I mean, you have to translate this stuff to take care of patients. So, well, you know. I think one of the problems that they're wrestling with is they don't, they don't say it. Now I'll put on my, my MBA cap momentarily is that to do a long-term longitudinal study um, of any of these things requires a lot of money and a great deal of time. It's, it's your career to work on that particular project. And so there's not a lot of money and there's not a lot of interest in doing that given the, the incentives in, uh, and rewards in academia. So if you look at a lot of these studies, they're all based on data that somebody else 
has collected, which also affords them the opportunity of not having to go to the Institutional Review Board and get approval for the study because it's data from somewhere else and it's de-identified and blah, blah, blah. And so a lot of what I think we're seeing is that um, people do not want to go to the time and expense to really begin to dig in to some of these issues, and they would rather um, move things forward by taking these increasingly large uh, data sets and fishing around for a, a, a nice associative link that they can discuss. You know, it, 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 as a physician, you know, and, and I was a, a surgeon, so we have a very, I had a very tiny little uh, world to work in. And, and, and I don't think that it's anything different than what we've been told for a thousand years. Everything in moderation, have a, regu have a reasonable diet, exercise, you know the things to try to avoid, and get on with your life. Nobody gets out alive. Nobody gets out alive. <laughs> that's good. I think that's the quote to end on. Nobody gets out alive, which is true. And uh, Aristotle could have told you more than a lot of these epidemiological studies tell you today. Yes. So <laughs> very good. I think that's the takeaway is approach all of these studies with caution when you see them in the headlines. Absolutely. But, we will uh, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you all so much for joining us. We'll be back again next week with another look at, at some of our some of our work. Uh, if you want to join our newsletter so you can get these emails we're talking about, you just go to our website. It's acsh.org. And you can follow us on Twitter as well, at acsh.org. And you can follow everything we're putting out. As always, thank you so much for listening. And we will see you next time. <laughs>